And hello, I'm Luke Hunt and this is yet another podcast for The Diplomat and with me today is one of Southeast Asia's great correspondents, John Macbeth, who's lived in Southeast Asia for many a decade, originally from New Zealand and has covered and been in most of the pretty much every masthead that's ever come out of the region. I'm sitting here with John in Jakarta, and I'm going to start by asking him, John, what were your most memorable stories? Well, after uh, 48 years, it's pretty difficult to put them all together, but I suppose starting uh, in 1972 with the sabotage of the Cathay Pacific jetliner, uh, killed 88 people, crashed over the central highlands of Vietnam. Great story, great court case. We'll always remember that. Uh, I think also in 1976, the um, smashing of the uh, heroin ring of black American servicemen in Bangkok. I knew some of the principles of that ring and it uh, proved to be a story that uh, went on for some months. I think uh, also probably the, all the coups that I covered in, Viet- in, uh, in Thailand, probably five or six at the most. Then on to Korea in the mid-80s where I covered the democratic transition. Then on to the Philippines, probably not a lot. Uh, the one thing I do, me- I, I do um, always recall about the Philippines was a story I wrote about eight months after I got there. I decided I have to go around the country and try to understand it better. So I interviewed just about every warlord that was there, came back, wrote probably, a, I think it was 25 columns for the Far Eastern Economic Review, told me more about that country in one story than during the four years I was there. And then, of course, on to Indonesia and the fall of Suharto, which occurred about three or four or five years after I got there. I think they, they were kind of standouts. Going back to your first story, I I remember that pretty well. It was uh, well covered in your book, Reporter, and that, correct me if I'm wrong, the plane was brought down by a very important tie. He actually strapped a bomb to his... Was it with his daughter and his um, mistress or something? It was was quite an extraordinary story. Yeah, it was his mistress, and she was taking uh, his daughter from a previous uh, marriage on a holiday to Hong Kong. And he put the bomb in a a C4 explosive. He put it in the cosmetics case that she was carrying. And she put it under the seat. And it went off right over the wing route of this uh, Convair 880 at a place that the suspect, or later, he, he, he later was acquitted, but he was a Thai police captain. All the evidence pointed to this man, and yet the court acquitted them because they basically they said they didn't believe that a that a Thai man could kill his own daughter. And along with it, many other people who uh, went down in a ball of flames over Vietnam. Yes, uh, 88 people died in that. I think um, one of the most memorable parts of that story was when I interviewed the two British accident investigators, Newton and Clancy, fascinating people. They'd uh, investigated the crash of a comet jetliner over the Isle of Rhodes in the Mediterranean uh, several years beforehand. And it was just fascinating listening to how they pieced that whole accident together, bits of uh, pitted metal, pieces of shrapnel in the the seat cushions. All this uh, constituted evidence of a bomb. 
And this is what they found. They told me when they were helicoptered into this crash site in Vietnam, they told me that uh, it had all the hallmarks of a bomb. They almost knew instantly that a bomb had brought down the plane. Right, and of course, the evidence in the seat were the seats that uh, his own daughter and mistress were uh, sitting in at the time. Yes, she, the, the, the mistress lost both legs. In fact, the, the bomb went off, uh, blew a hole in the side of the plane, and the little girl was sucked out. They never found her body, actually. And the, they did find the body of the mistress, and uh, you know, clearly the bomb had gone un, off under the seat because she had the most horrendous uh, injuries. Uh, Southeast Asia is um, never a stranger to such tales. You've covered many, many elections, uh, many countries, and from, as you said, from the Philippines uh, down to the Cambodian border, the Khmer Rouge days, of all the leaders that have led countries over the last half century almost, who do you think have been the best and who do you think have been the worst? <laughs> That's a really difficult question. I think every leader is flawed in one way or another. I could probably tell you some of the worst leaders. I'm not sure about the best. Uh, the most memorable to me probably was uh, um, General Prem Tinsulunon uh, in Thailand. Uh, General Kriangsak, these were in the early days of Thailand's flirtation with democracy. Moving on, I, I, I've got to say that uh, probably the most boring interview I ever did was with uh, President No Tae in Korea. Um, in fact, the editor of the Far Eastern Economic Review, David uh, Derek Davis, came with me. He normally, if he came to a story, he normally wrote it. At this time, the, story, the, the interview was so boring that he left it to me to, to try and piece something together, which I did, of course. Moving on, I, I suppose in the Philippines, Cory Aquino never really impressed me, but then for the longest time in the Philippines, or particularly in Manila, we were without power and, uh, and because she hadn't built enough power stations, so I, I, do, I wasn't really impressed with her. Um, then moving on, of course, to uh, President Sahato. Probably, uh, I mean, what can you say? I've, I've lived under so many dictatorships that it's, uh, it's pretty difficult to judge one from the other. I, I thought it was fascinating the way he was brought down, the way the economy went south on him. Uh, that was always going to be the end of Suharto. And uh, since then, of course, we've had a succession of presidents in Indonesia. I, I, I wouldn't say one were any better than the other. But, um, but Indonesia does seem to have improved enormously since the Suharto days in the late 90s, which when he was, of course, well, his downfall followed the Asian financial crisis and the deadly riots that broke out. And in fact, I think um, one person... One analyst said to me that uh, Indonesia at that point had lost more than 90% of its national wealth. Extraordinary figures in an extraordinary time. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was quite uh, as bad as that, but it was certainly very bad. And, um, and uh, you know, I think we none of us saw the fall of Suharto coming. Perhaps we should have. When the Asian financial crisis hit, we all should have realised at that point that that was his weak point, that the layers of the onion would start to uh, unravel, and that's what happened. And uh, I think uh, Indonesia took so long to get over that crisis, 
And at the end of the day, I think although the, the Indonesian people toppled the leader, they didn't really dismantle the the whole the regime and its structure, and that has persisted ever since. And I think is the reason why Indonesia still struggles today to get through this sort of democratic transition. Right, and of course on that note, we've just had the elections in Indonesia. Uh, uh, Joko Jokowi Widodo has been mm. re-elected for a second term. Prabowo uh, Subianto was again defeated. Uh, how do you think the election stacked up and uh, what does it say about the next five years? Well, I think we all uh, thought that um, Jokowi, as he's called, would, would win the election and uh, he won it by uh, probably four percentage points more. But I think the what this election told us is um, how polarised Indonesia is becoming. We have um, basically he won the election in Central and East Java, which are two of the most populous provinces in the country. That's the Javanese homeland, as we call it, and uh, uh, and along with all the mostly uh, Christian provinces in eastern Indonesia. That was on one side. On the other is West Java, which is basically very conservative Islam. And uh, three of the biggest islands all voted for Prabowo. So I think we could say that the, the, the lines have, have become a lot sharper. Uh, the lines of re- religion and, and ethnicity have become a, a lot clearer in this, uh, from this election, and it's something I think we need to worry about. And I think it's something that uh, Jokowi has to uh, address. Is that likely to compromise efforts to... Um build infrastructure projects, get the economy moving, which has been seen as one of uh, Jokowi's big pluses during his uh, first term. But there's a lot of of calls out there for him to get a move on in terms of bolstering the economy, getting these big ticket infrastructure projects going, which Indonesia badly needs. Well, I think he's I think he's done a very good job on infrastructure. His biggest challenge now, in fact, uh, in my opinion, in the in the second term, is education. I think it's the the biggest barrier to uh, to Indonesia's growth, uh, along with more foreign investment. And there's a very serious contradiction between the sort of economic nationalist policies that he has and uh, his desire for foreign investment. Foreign investors are not going to come here if they are uh, getting the back of his hand. And I don't think uh, the president understands that there is a contradiction here, uh, that uh, he's got to somehow uh, ensure that uh, regulations stay as they are. And until he does, he he needs foreign investment to grow the manufacturing sector. And uh, I think every economist would agree that the only way he's going to get beyond 5% growth... Now, look, you know, a lot of people say, well, 5% growth is fine. Well, it is. It's, it's pretty... It's fine compared with a lot of countries. But it's not going to... Uh, it doesn't provide a future for Indonesia or for Indonesia's um, younger people. And really, this country should be growing at at least 6% and maybe seven, with all its natural resources, everything that's going for it, uh, it's, um, it just requires, in my opinion, some really significant shifts in policy. And of course, you, you referenced uh, the younger people here, the millennials, there were 60 million of them who uh, voted at the election. There were fears that they wouldn't turn out, but they did. Uh, nevertheless, there is a growing trend 
around the region with uh, this new brand of uh, millennials, the digital savvy, the educated coming along. And pleasing them is not always easier for the um, for the older school type politician. How big an influence do you think they're going to have in terms of how the government shapes policy and how Jakawi runs his uh, second term and even beyond that? Oh, I think they'll uh, they'll have an influence for, uh, influence for sure, but it, it depends on whether they get into the sort of leadership positions and it depends also, of course, on whether they get uh, chewed up in the big political um, mixer, which uh, here uh, tends to compromise a lot of younger politicians. There's so many have gone to jail on corruption charges simply because the culture, the political culture here is... Uh, is very difficult to deal with as a as a young as a younger politician, and until they can uh, sort that out, uh, until uh, parties begin to develop policies, until the, the this this rather uh, disturbing trend of identity politics goes away, uh, Indonesia is still going to be struggling a bit, I think, uh, with uh, with its democratic transition. Of course, when we're referring to foreign investment, uh, Indonesia seems to have adopted a more conservative attitude to uh, China, uh, Chinese investment, um, particularly when compared with other countries around the world. And there are different strategies emerging in terms of regional security. There's uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy. There is potential trilateral relations with uh, India and Australia and of course uh, New Zealand in the Pacific is, will be a player in that at some point and, um, uh, and Chinese investment up against Chinese expansion which uh, when you look at the Chinese claims in the region particularly south of Natuna Island these sorts of issues uh, I think are set to bedevil Indonesian foreign policy over the coming years. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Thailand, uh, Indonesia has been very uh, careful in its dealings with uh, China, but they have drawn a line in the Natuna Sea, and uh, they're not going to budge from that. And I think the Chinese have backed off this a little bit. There was an uh, issue with, uh, with fish uh, uh, trawlers intruding in Indonesian waters. The Indonesians uh, were pretty firm over that, and I think the Chinese have backed off a bit. So in that sense, I think uh, the Indonesians still uh, look to China for investment, for particularly for infrastructure. The Chinese are investing heavily in, uh, in nickel, in, uh, in Indonesia particularly, in Sulawesi and Halmahera, which is across the water. There's uh, probably close to $20 billion worth of investment there. This is part, of course, of Indonesia's um, policy of value added in the mining industry. Uh, it is one aspect of that policy that's working very well. The rest of the policy is not working so well and needs quite a bit of tinkering with. Uh, the Chinese also are being looked at, I think, for, for things like the Jakarta-Bandung fast rail project, which has been delayed, of course, by land acquisition issues. But um, that's, a, that's a $6 billion project, and I think uh, that'll go ahead, although a lot of people have doubts about its veracity. Also, other, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the president has been, has, has had to be a little careful with China because he stands 
accused, of course, by the, his opposition rival, Prabowo Subianto, of, of being in China's pocket. And uh, that's something that doesn't resonate well in, uh, in Indonesia, particularly among uh, some of the uh, hardline Muslim folks who still uh, who talk about inequality in Indonesia and how Chinese seem to own the economy. Uh, local Indonesian Chinese seem to own the economy. Very, very sensitive issue here. Uh, so he's got to be a little careful in his dealings with China. Sure, and um, I'm sure a lot of people would, who have been around long enough would remember the anti-Chinese riots that mm. followed the downfall of Suharto in 1998. On internal security, Indonesia has certainly calmed down enormously since the Suharto days when people were talking about the balkanisation of Indonesia, East Timor, Gemma Islamia, war on terror, for want of a better term. The main trouble spot seems to be the Far East provinces, in particular Papua. How big an issue is this? Is it, is it a threatening issue or is it an isolated issue? It's a, it's a very, uh, certainly it's an interesting spot on the map, um, but it's a very difficult one to get a reasonable handle on. Oh, I think uh, Papua is very much an isolated issue, but it's uh, it's not to say it's not an important issue. To me, it's a, it's a little sad. You know, you've got Melanesians mixing with basically boogies from Sulawesi. There's a growing number of uh, migrants from outside of Papua settling in, settling in the whole territory. Uh, I think the now the, the balance is in favour of the migrants. A lot of people outside this country seem to think this is a government policy. Well, initially, when the transmigration program was were, were, was going on under Suharto, yes, it was a deliberate policy to move probably close to 700,000 uh, people from other parts of Indonesia to Papua. But now it's just natural migration, people looking, boogies looking for... Um, for economic opportunities, and little by little, with the with the with the building of the Trans Papua Highway, you're going to see more and more migrants moving into the highlands, where the where the basically the the native Papuans um, are concentrated. I can see increasing um, friction between the two groups, mostly over economic opportunity more than anything. So it's. This is an issue that's going to go on for some time and uh, it's and, and it behoves the government to perhaps treat the Papuans with a little more respect than they have up to now. It's a very frustrating process, but uh, they've got to work at it. And um, otherwise, this is going to become an international issue over time. You can see that the Papuan uh, resistance has become smarter they understand how, how, how they can take their case to the world. So it's, it, this is going to be an issue that's going to be with Indonesia for quite some time. In terms of covering the region, and in particular Indonesia, which has uh, 18,300 odd islands. I think it's closer to 17,000. obviously digital technology has had enormous impact in terms of the way governments can or cannot control the flow of information in terms of what people find out how they react uh government's ability to control population movements it's also a it's a it's an enormous issue that's affected countries from you know Thailand, Cambodia, and across Southeast Asia, and it's had an enormous impact 
on journalism and the media and the way we go to work every day. How do you, uh, there's some big comparisons in there, but how do you compare today with when you first started? Absolutely no comparison at all. And uh, I think one of the most important things to understand here is that I lived in the salad days of journalism, certainly in, in, in Southeast Asia. I had fun. I just get the feeling these days that journalists are not having fun. It's become drudgery. They're looking at screens. They're not, in my opinion, going out and talking to enough people. I still fervently believe in the warm body. I, I talk to sources who I've known for 20 years. I really insist on going and seeing them face to face. The phone doesn't do it for me. I've got to see the body language. I've got to, I've got to create a relationship. And uh, to me, that's what journalism is all about. And I think that's the big difference. I just don't think the, you know, you get these scrums everywhere now in journalism. I'd hate that. I didn't really have to participate in them uh, when I was a reporter. And um, as a journalist, and who, I, 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 need, I need the ability to, to think about uh, what I'm writing. And I need to, um, that's, and I, I achieve that by, by talking to people face to face. So it's a, it's a very different um, game. And um, I'm just uh, glad I'm cl- nearer the end of it than the start of it. And there are certain stories that come to mind from your uh, biography where, for example, once the Khmer Rouge had taken over Cambodia and there was a bloody exodus from Phnom Penh, which was actually, as a city, it was sacked. But nothing was coming out of there for quite a few years. The best stories were coming out from along the borders, uh, the Thai border with Cambodia and people going down there, such as yourself. And that was how uh, the true atrocities that the Khmer Rouge were committing, that was when and how those stories came out. What were some of the more interesting or the greatest stories that you think came out of the Pol Pot regime, and particularly when you were working on the Thai-Cambodian border? Well, I must say I didn't go to the border quite as much as some of my colleagues, mainly because I had to cover Thailand and there was a lot going on in, 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 in Thailand at that time as well. But I think one of, one of the most memorable trips I ever made was in 1977 with a, with a, a colleague from... Uh, we went along the northeast part of the border. We ran into... Uh, we, we stopped in refugee camps. Sure, we talked to a lot of refugees. We talked to even Khmer Rouge defectors at that time. Very illuminating interviews. But I think... Um, and then uh, towards the air, we got to Ubon Ratchatani, which is in the far northeast of, of um, Thailand, and, and ran into uh, a couple of refugees who had made their way from Krache, uh, way down on the Mekong River, which is amazing, because they'd walked more than two, 300 kilometres through, basically, Khmer Rouge territory. But I think uh, one of the most memorable uh, interviews I did was in Surin, in a police station. When the refugees moved, came across the border, they were originally detained in, in, in police stations, and then they were moved to, to refugee camps. When they got to refugee camps, they recovered quite quickly. But when you met them in a police station, I remember this one man who I think was 48, he looked like he was 70, and his wife and four children 
and they'd just crossed the border. It'd been across the border by about eight hours. And this man had the thousand-yard stare. And we spent all afternoon, we must have spent seven hours talking to this man and trying to extract a story from him because he was so traumatised, he and his wife. And he actually didn't know why we wanted to talk to him. And little by little, we got it out of him. But I, I thought to myself, I wish some of the people who doubted the Khmer Rouge atrocities had been there sitting with me on that interview. And they would have been convinced of what this man had been through. He'd lost four of his eight children coming out um, shot, blown up in mines. And he he just, uh, I mean, you just... You just listened to him and you knew what uh, you, you knew how horrible it was inside Cambodia. And of course, it's easy to forget the people who really did support the Khmer Rouge. And then when the reports of the atrocities that were coming out, there are a lot of diplomats, journalists, there are a lot of people on the left. They were all saying this just simply isn't true. Of course, you don't hear from them now. We have the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, which is finally drawing a conclusion. And it's, it's all been consigned to history. But uh, I think my point is that if it wasn't for that first-hand original reporting, uh, the original atrocities of the Khmer Rouge would never have been out and in the newspapers in the first place. Yeah, I'm still bitter about that. And the people who um, questioned our reporting uh, know who they are, and uh, I will never forgive them uh, because they, they weren't there. They didn't come and interview people themselves. They just had their own ideological thinking, and that was this was an agrarian revolution and it was wonderful and, and nothing was going on. And it was clear almost from day one what was going on. And it wasn't until the Vietnamese invaded in 1979 that um, suddenly they all discovered that there'd been the, 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 this reign of terror. I mean, I don't know how anyone can call himself a journalist if he just if he doesn't do his own reporting and just relies on his own where he's coming from ideologically. And there were quite a few of those. And it was pretty sad to me, frankly. And I was very bitter about it. And I basically I still am. And of course, that's a big issue today with the way journalism has gone in the digital age. And that is that uh, there are a lot more activists who uh, like to sell themselves as journalists. As a final note, what would be your advice to uh, young journalists who are looking at going into the business today? Find a job, frankly. <laughs> I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to find a job and to be able to retain your integrity. I'm a very basic journalist. I was brought up in a country newspaper in New Zealand. I learnt all my lessons in the first four years I was in the paper and it has held me in good stead through my whole career, which is now approaching 60 years. I, I'm just appalled, frankly, at, at how journalists today are so willing to tell you uh, which side of the uh, divide they're on. I will not go on social media and, and get, engage in conversations about, about Democrats and Republicans or Conservatives or Labor. I just think uh, you've still got to retain somehow some sort of objectivity. Why will people read you if they know you're on one side or the other? We've all got our own personal feelings, of course we have, and they sometimes intrude on the way we report. I'll be first to admit that. 
but we've got to somehow retain some objectivity. Otherwise, people, why will people believe us? And, uh, you know, the way the social media have gone, has gone, uh, people are believing stuff on social media that has had, hasn't been edited. People can say what they like. You know, I, I fear over time that we won't have a responsible media anymore and people won't know where to turn to for the truth. Uh, as I, it's been said before, I think, but uh, social media has become the echo chamber for every intellectual and every idiot. On that note, and amid a call to prayers in the background, uh, John Macbeth, thank you very much. Thank you.